If you are a teacher, parent, administrator, student, and or anyone who loves reconnecting children with nature, and you want to figure out how to cultivate learning gardens and nature-based curriculum, then this is the podcast, the Outdoor Classrooms Podcast. My name is Victoria Hackett. I am the founder of OutdoorClassrooms.com and the Secret Gardens Nature Classes. I love witnessing the magic that happens when children are playfully learning outdoors, observing the return of wonder and curiosity. Curiosity when children are interacting with nature is pure magic. This is the podcast that is going to help you capture children's interest and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies that are going to help you figure out how to use the outdoor space, your outdoor space, as a teaching tool so you can enlighten the playful learning experience for young children. Welcome to our Outdoor Classrooms community. Do you not know what to do with children outdoors during these cold winter months? It's normal to want to curl up and snuggle up through the cold winter months, but while skipping the outdoor time may seem like a great idea at the moment, it can be a problem for everyone in the long run. Germs, lack of exercise, and boredom quickly result in behavior problems and sick and miserable, unengaged kids. Stay tuned. Keep an eye out. You're going to want to get on the waiting list for our upcoming Exploring Nature in Winter Masterclass. It's going to be starting in February, but the doors will open to register at the end of January. So the folks that are on the waiting list will be able to get in early. So hop on over to our Facebook page, Outdoor Classrooms Facebook page, and or our Instagram page to get on the waiting list. See you there. Tom, teacher Tom Hobson, is an early childhood educator, international speaker, education consultant, teacher of teachers, parent educator, and author. He is best known, however, for his namesake blog, Teacher Tom's Blog, where he has posted daily for over a decade chronicling the life and times of his preschool in the rain-soaked Pacific Northwest corner of the U.S. Today, Teacher Tom travels around the world, Greece, Iceland, Australia, China, Vietnam, New Zealand, Canada, the U.K., and across the U.S., sharing his views on early childhood education, play, and pedagogy. He has authored his first book, aptly named Teacher Tom, and I think he has a second one called the second book, Teacher Tom's Second Book. Without further ado, Teacher Tom. Hello, everybody. We are here with Teacher Tom, and Teacher Tom is going to share his story and a little bit about his play-based work and how he takes it outdoors and encourages teachers to take it outdoors. Welcome, Teacher Tom. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for having me on. Great. So if you can tell us how you became Teacher Tom. Uh, Well, it's um, it's I have long long versions and short versions. I'll give you the kind of ex uh, medium version maybe here. I had no plans to be a teacher. That was not in my cards. I was a freelance writer. I had been a baseball coach. I had uh, been a junior business executive. Several other things like that. And well, when our daughter was born, so I've been married. My wife and I we've been married for thirty six years and uh, be thirty eight years together. And so we're we when we decided to have a child. Um, her career was the one that was really making the money. And so I uh, was the stay-at-home parent. And we, you know, we were very lucky. We were very fortunate to be able to do that. 
And I discovered that, um, you know, I really love the stay at home aspect of that. I just thought that that whole idea of being a stay at home and I'm basically an introvert and the idea of just like snuggling at home with our little baby and cooking food together and, and playing little games and reading books and singing songs all sounded really good to me. But before she was even two years old, our daughter, who I think is more of an extrovert, more like her mom, she started saying things like, Papa, today, let's do something. Let's go somewhere. Uh, so I uh, so I started going to local parks. I didn't know what else to do. I was just going to local parks and playgrounds. And I kind of thought, started thinking, you know, maybe preschool. Maybe we need to enroll in preschool. Maybe that's what she's asking me for. And so I, uh, and, and, and so I asked my wife about that. And she said, no. She said, you're not going to go drop your daughter, our daughter off someplace. She's got, she's a lucky one. She has a stay at home parent. She doesn't need to have, um, be cared for by someone else. Then I went behind my wife's back and I asked my mom and my mom said the same thing. Then I asked my mother-in-law and she said the same thing. Um, so you don't go against those three women in your life. (laughs) And so, um, one day I was at a playground and I was chatting with a, um, a mother there and she told me about a preschool that her son went to uh, a few days a week where the parents went with the children called a cooperative. And when I ran that idea by everybody, they all said, that sounds like a good idea. So uh, Josephine and I started going to a cooperative preschool. And when, after three years going every, you know, I was going almost every day. I wasn't just going one day a week. I was going all the time because I loved it so much. And so I, you know, and so when uh, my, our daughter went on to kindergarten, her teacher said to me, Chris David, one of my mentors, she just said, uh, what are you going to do? And I, the idea of going back to sitting in front of a computer writing other people's writing all day long sounded really grim to me. Um, and so she said, you should be a preschool teacher. And, you know, and that was sort of the story, how I became a preschool teacher. And then uh, the teacher, Tom Park, was, uh, that's what the kids called me. But uh, I started writing a blog in 2009. And I started writing every day. And it, people read it. And that's kind of how I became Teacher Tom. That is awesome. So your work really evolved in the play-based learning. What was it about becoming a preschool teacher all of a sudden in the cooperative? And then you started writing about your experiences. Right. And and well, you were really tapped into play. Well, that's all I know. I, I've never been in another kind of educational environment uh, as a parent. Uh, obviously, I had you know, I went public school and everything else is, you know, so I knew that background, but you know, Chris David was a master teacher. And so I watched her, I got to see what was going on with the kids. I got to see it from the inside, how it works, how the children learn, how they thrive in that kind of environment. And then I, you know, I did some coursework at North Seattle college, which uh, Tom Drummond was there, another of my great mentors, and he's still writing on his blog. So he's still out there doing stuff. And and uh, between the two of them, I'd never, I mean, I really didn't get a chance to learn any other way. And I'm so grateful for that. And a, a, lo- a great deal of my education as an educator came from writing that blog, processing my thoughts, my ideas, things that would pop up and, and sharing them out there and then getting feedback, kind of the way a scientist would do it, right? You just, yeah. you, you publish your papers and you, and people try to shoot it down or or build mm-hmm. you up one way or another. And so that's kind of, uh, that's how I got into it. Um, but now I feel like, I wish everybody had that experience. I wish certainly every young child. Yeah. One of your taglines is teaching and learning from preschoolers. I love that. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you really, they they have become your teachers and really learning 
uh, from them. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience and maybe how you used it outdoors? Since Okay, since that's what we're talking about. Since that's what we're talking about. Well, um, I mean, really, this wasn't, this isn't outdoors, but really one of the first times I realized I was learning from the children was uh, when our daughter was two and I was just a parent in the preschool and I found myself under a table with a bunch of (laughs) two-year-olds. And I looked up and I saw the bottom of the table and I said, I haven't seen this in, you know, 40 years. And I realized that there was a whole world there that I had, I had discovered once and then had lost. Mm-hmm. And I realized that they had a chance to guide me to do things like get under tables again and things like that. And certainly that's true when you get outside, when you're outdoors and you see how young children, they, you know, they might be bouncing off the walls inside, right? They're in, indoors, ceilings and walls, I think sometimes do strange things to each other. But as my friend Aaron Kinney used to say, you know, when you take away the walls, there's nothing to bounce off of. And immediately these children, these high, you know, People say, send them outside to burn off energy, but very often they drop to their knees and start studying moats mm-hmm. and and dust things, and they pick up little pebbles, and, and just the fact that they, the moment they go outdoors, whether it's nature or an urban outdoor environment, they suddenly become reflective, meditative, and calmer, more focused, uh, and I do think that we are designed to spend a lot of our lives, maybe most of our lives outdoors. Yeah, we were, I run a parent-child nature classes and that came from a request from community members were like asking me, could you please do this? And so I started doing it. I had not realized how much I'd missed being with children in a classroom environment. So I created this outdoor classroom and one of the things uh, we were just playing the last week, we were playing a hide and seek and uh-huh. I was laughing and they, the kids wanted us to play. And I was at, I have an assistant that joins me and she, I said, did you ever think that we would be doing this? <laughs> <laughs> it had a little snow. I mean, it was just, yeah. but I was, had that invigorated feeling of what we're all talking about in terms right. of being, it was cold and brisky and, but wonderful, as you were saying, that wonderful feeling of being snuggly and, um, and how yeah, to get well, that and, when and we're outside. We did, you know, we were an urban school. And so we were, you know, and it took me a while because I would, I would look around and I'd see, you know, people who have access to a forest or access to a beach or, you know, close access to a park or some other, these natural uh, spaces. Then I started asking myself, okay, what is the natural outdoor habitat for urban kids? And I realized the vacant lot is really, that's kind of the classic story, you know? And so really that's why we, we were very lucky that our landlords, uh, the Fremont Baptist church allowed us to basically build a junkyard playground right next to the church. Uh, We did have to build a high fence uh, just, you know, (laughs) not to keep the kids in, but to keep people from seeing the junkyard playground. And uh, to me, that was, you know, suddenly you fill the world up with loose parts, things that are interesting to the children. So we might've lacked the, the typical natural spaces, but we had trees, we had plants, we had weeds. uh, We grew a garden. We did all those things. And then we would have, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, We got visited by a bald eagle one day and it sat in the top of the tree and it devoured a pigeon. (laughs) And that was quite a lesson. Um, We had raccoons that would come. We had, there were evident rats would sometimes, sometimes the kids would get a rat trapped out on the playground and it would panic and run under a table and the kids would stand around watching this animal. And of course, as adults, we're like, oh my God, a rat, how disgusting, you know, but that is part of the nature of nature in a city is those animals. Um, So we, we really, we did I think we created a pretty um, good outdoor experience for the children, even though you might have thought we were limited. 
Yeah, that's a really wonderful message to let let all of our listeners know in terms of we there are many we think of forest schools know that needs to be in the forest but there's many many different possibilities and even if you're just pulling out some loose parts that alone can be a part of the learning experience mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit more about loose parts and if those that don't necessarily know how to use that outdoors or how to bring them outdoors well, for me, okay, so loose parts, I, I think it's a fascinating topic because the man who coined that term was a man named Simon Nicholson, and he wrote it. He was a landscape architect, right? And he was wrote an article in 1977, I believe. It was in the late 70s for a publication called Landscape Architecture. So this was, it didn't have anything to do with early childhood education. He was writing this for architects. And I think it's fascinating that it came out of somebody who works with environments, And the article was called The Theory of Loose Parts, How Not to Cheat Children. Hmm. And it was fascinating because his basic idea was that we live in a world where the architect, for example, gets to build the building, create this beautiful space, and essentially have all the fun. And the rest of us then are expected to show up and just admire this great man's work. Right. When in reality, he wanted, he thought places should be places that we manipulated. His vision was that every museum should be hands on museum for adults and children. Every public space should be we have the freedom to move the walls. We have freedom to move the windows and things like that. That was and what that does for us. And it's the same thing that, you know, just going out into a, a, an, any natural environment when you have toys have scripts built into them. Every toy has a script, right? And that's in its, and very often children will get that toy. And, you know, some of them are really overt, like Paw Patrol characters, right? And so they all have to play Marshall and Sky and whatever the other characters are. And then it's really limiting that way. Loose parts have no script built into them. So the children have to write their own story about Mm. how to use these things. And it puts them in the position of being a scientist. So you've seen them, right? When they're outside and they're in the forest and they're, you know, they, they're using sticks. Sticks can be anything, right? It's one of the greatest toys, you know, possible is a stick. Second only to maybe the cardboard box, which is <laughs> a man right. manufactured thing. Um, so, and which is a classic loose part kind of thing. So our, our playground would be full of sticks and rocks and leaves and all of those naps, sand and water. And then we would also have things like shipping pallets and planks of wood. And bro- lots of broken toys, um, things like that, that that were not toys anymore, right? Cars without wheels. Well, what can you use this for? And the mental experiment I like to ask people to do is, you know, imagine if you have a group of children and you have a, a lawnmower out there and you have a toy lawnmower out there, which one are they going to play with? Every child goes to the real lawnmower because children want the real world. Mm-hmm. That is what they're driven to learn about is the real world they find around them. So I think it's fascinating that when we create an environment without scripts built into it, or when we allow children to go into environments like nature where there's not a script built into it, that's when they become the most creative. That's when they become the creative geniuses that we know that they are. I love that. I've never really thought about it as an environment without a script. I really, that's resonating with me. The one thing that you had mentioned with these junk playgrounds and there's, there's, they're popping up everywhere. I can hear teachers and parents' voices in my head going, well, what about safety? I don't know. I don't know. It looks a little (laughs) unsafe to me. Uh, How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, um, I can say from experience with 20 years playing in playgrounds like that, 
you know, we we had we never once turned to our insurance company to pay a claim in 20 years. So I think yeah. that most schools could not say that. The the safety, I mean, that's important, right? I mean, what I always say is that you, you want to get rid of hazards, right? So if there's a shipping pallet with a, a nail sticking out of it, obviously you remove the nail because that's something you can just get injured on. An urban playground almost always has broken glass somewhere, right? Because you don't realize that till you're taking care of a bunch of kids in an urban environment. You realize, well, you've got to, you want to get rid of that, right? It, it doesn't make a very good play thing, broken glass. But then there's risk, right? And children, we don't, we didn't create a lot of opportunities for children to like necessarily climb high, right? There's not a climbing structure out there, but we have ladders. So mm-hmm. if they choose to climb high, they can go get the ladders and get themselves up high on something, or they can climb the trees. And this is a self-selected activity. And I mean, the science is very clear. If ch- the prefrontal cortex needs actual risk in order to develop properly. Without that, we don't learn how to assess risk. Uh, we don't learn. We 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 gain incredible confidence in ourselves. We learn about our limitations and our abilities. And yes, there's bumps and bruises. That's a natural part of childhood. Without the bumps and bruises, if we protect them from all of those, the moment they re- are, they're removed from our environment where we're keeping them ultra safe, they're going to go out and hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think all we do is we push the injuries off into the future. And believe me, I would much rather the two-year-olds hit their thumb with the hammer by hammering outside and hit their own thumb than to wait till I'm 62 like I am now and hit my thumb because I'm liable to break my thumb, right? <laughs> the process of learning to use a hammer is involves hitting your thumb with a hammer. That's part of it. The par- process of learning to use a hot glue gun is to burn yourself on it. And the process of learning to run on une- uneven surfaces is to fall down on it. It's all part of the learning process. And that does I don't want to sound like I'm cavalier about it. Um, there's very little research on playground safety. I mean, it's surprising. I've tried to yeah. look this up and find out, you know, what truly is safe. Most of the safety precautions, like the fall zones and the rounded corners and all that stuff, is just somebody's best guess about what will keep children safe. Mm. There is what data I have seen uh, indicates that adventure playgrounds actually have lower injury rates than than uh, those these safe so-called safe playgrounds. Uh, for one thing, I think it's because it's the, the children see the same things the adults do. They say, I could get hurt here. Mm-hmm. And they tell them, and so they're automatically going to be more cautious. They're going to take more care because they see that they could stumble. They see that they could fall. They could see they could get a splinter from something. Whereas when you, we have, you know, rounded all the corners and pattered all the hard things, you know, children, I watch them, you know, on playgrounds, they run up and down the, like there's a ladder built onto the climbing structure. They just race up and down. In the real world, a ladder is a hazardous thing. Mm-hmm. There's danger involved. You want to make sure it's on level ground. You want to make sure, sure somebody's holding it for you. You don't want to get too high or it gets top heavy and topples over. Um, so that's why we offer ladders. And then the children have to practice being safe with getting up high. And one time the children wanted to get up really high in a tree. We didn't have a ladder that high. So they decided to build their own ladder. See, this is what's great when you don't have scripts and we have lots of lumber around the parents. I would say to parents, you know, any kind of time you have a home improvement project or something, bring us your scraps. And so these kids went and they they got two long pieces, two by fours to be the sides. And they started, you know, scavenging around. They weren't hammering like rungs on there. And they sometimes they would drive the nail and it would stick out on the back and they knew they couldn't leave that. Right. They automatically knew they couldn't leave the pokey part because the little kids might get hurt. 
-hmm. right? So they would pry that out and put the next one in. And finally, they built that ladder and it took about a week for they finally got it to where they went. They leaned it against the tree they wanted, they had chosen because they were going to build a tree house up there. And then they just stood there staring at it. And one of the little girls said, teacher, Tom, you try it. And I said, I'm not going to try it. It's your <laughs> and so this girl who was, you know, and I, I've told stories about her in many contexts. Her name is Charlotte. And she was just the boldest, most, if any kid was going to get hurt, it was going to be her because she was always hurling her body around. But she went over there, Charlotte, bold Charlotte went over there. And the first thing she did was test it, right? She took her hands and wiggled to make, because she knew who she, she knew how it had been built. She knew who had built it. She tested each one of these rungs as she climbed all the way up to the top of the ladder. Then when she came down, every single one of the children who tried it after that did the same process of testing the rungs. Most of them only chose to go halfway up. Charlotte went to the top, but the rest, you know, most went halfway up because that's as far as they felt comfortable. One boy stood, he tested the rungs, but he stood with his feet flat on the ground. <laughs> and still, but he still, every one of them, because they, they were assessing their own risk tolerance. And practicing doing that. So for me, what we do is we put children in a position to take care of themselves. Yeah. And the outdoors is where to do that, where they can do that, because they don't necessarily have the walls. You can't necessarily create those spaces indoors. Right. And all of the research in terms of the benefits of just physically being outdoors mm -hmm. uh, speaks well, to the that. fresh air, the, 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 the various temperatures. Um, knowing how to dress to be in, right. in different environments. I mean, we would go outside, you know, every day. And in the Pacific Northwest, it rains pretty much for nine months of the year. So we were outside in the rain, you know, almost every single day. And you just, there's no bad weather, just bad clothing, as you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. No, and it and it's a process. I think for young parents that are just starting out, I know I have a lot of parents that are, that are we want a renter program. We go straight through and we're in New England. So mm -hmm. North Shore, Boston. So we uh, parents are trying to figure out the gloves and the mittens and what what's waterproof and seeing what other people are doing. It's it's wonderful because eventually, once they're trained and they can figure out, okay, it's time to shift into the winter gear and and when the kids are warm and happy and they've got waterproof gear on, they they'll stay out for hours. That's right. Well, there's this great exercise that Peter Gray, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, that he he talks about in his book, Free to Learn. He says, you know, he's been doing it for a long time. He asked children, preschool age children, uh, would you rather be indoors or outdoors? And he says 90% of them say outdoors. And I've had that same that same experience. Yeah. And then he asked them, would you rather be playing with your friends or playing video games? And he said something like 80% of them say rather be playing with their friends. So it's a myth that children are all addicted to their video games. They'd much rather be outside playing with their friends. Yeah. At least our anecdotal dotal little, you know, because I've been trying this out ever since I read that. And I found exactly that to be true. Uh, I did have one boy say to me one time, he thought about it for a minute. And he said, I'd rather be playing video games outdoors with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I think we're in an environment where we don't necessarily, kids aren't jumping on their bikes in the neighborhoods and meeting up at the park. And so that is sort of gone. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit harder to create that those environments for our children. And, mm -hmm. and there's very few nature-based programs after schools and whatnot. Yeah. So it's it's really trying to figure out, well, when are the children going to spend time outside. Yeah. No, I, I feel like our, our preschools, that should be our job. 
Yeah. We need to create that environment because, you know, I think about my own childhood and, and, and a lot of, I've shared this a lot. It's, you know, as long as, as young as four years old, mom would say, go outside. You're driving me crazy. Go outside. And she'd close the door and I'd go out there and, you know, and then I would look for other kids, right? That's the first thing you'd look for. I'm outside. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for other kids. She didn't expect you to come home until, you know, no, she called. So right. you had lots, so you had lots of time. I, there weren't many toys. Outdoors was not, you know, we had some toys indoors, but outdoors, you know, maybe a wagon or a bicycle, but that's transportation. And, you know, and we would, and so we, and we were all relatively unsupervised. And so I always say that in preschool environments, that those are the conditions that we need. I would like to see us all striving to work towards. Um, I, I, obviously, we're not going to do the unsupervised, but at least stepping back and getting out yeah. of their way and allowing them to have that authentic childhood. Uh, where it's not, I remember as a kid, we would do anything we could to keep the adults out of our games. I mean, we yeah. would be outside playing. If somebody got hurt, I mean, it would, it had to be pretty bad before we'd call one of the parents in. In fact, I started carrying band-aids in my pocket with me. <laughs> I would go into the medicine cabinet and fill my pocket up with band-aids in case somebody got hurt. Then we could just take care of it right there on the street and get back to playing. Because once you got a parent involved, they would say, oh, you can't play that anymore. Or that's right. too dangerous. Or or I'd never forget one of the fathers in the neighborhood who played tackle football. And I was, you know, I was like a five-year-old playing tackle football with a and this boy was probably 10, his son, John Sane. And he would just run right over us. His dad saw that one day and his dad came out and he felt bad because his son was running over all the little kids. And he just he and he banned football for the whole neighborhood, tackle football. And it was and, and John was so embarrassed and we were all really upset. So we had to go to the next street over to play tackle football. <laughs> Because <laughs> we needed the unsupervised place to do it. <laughs> yeah, it speaks to it speaks volumes. Yeah, and and how we need to get back to that. We need to get that pendulum back into that. It's it's what it... we've. I mean, I think about this. It's it's how humans have evolved to learn in the early years is through that exploratory play and and through a lot of it's rough and tumble, um, but it's not always. As we talk, as I mentioned before, sometimes it's studying moats. Sometimes yeah. it's collecting insects. Sometimes it's picking different leaves off of trees and comparing and contrasting and in in your own way, right? So, nature based education. How what, how do you feel about getting educators trained in outdoor classrooms, nature pedagogy, all of this? How I mean, what I envision is is that we need to get more. We need to get this language, this vocabulary, this these concepts into uh, training programs so educators are coming out of the programs having had it so we don't necessarily have to retrain them when they come out. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. Um, I think the biggest challenge, though, is to what we're doing to schools in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're making it incredibly academic. Uh, so many children are growing up today, and they're as young as three years old now. They're starting to drill them on like phonics and and lit- reading things, and it's it's insane to be trying to teach two and three year olds, four year olds how to read. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do it, and you teach them when they're two. You teach them when they're three. You teach them when they're four. You teach them when they're five. You teach them when they're six, and then around seven years old, they get it. Or you can wait till they're seven, and then they get it. Because mm-hmm. um, that's developmentally, most of the research shows that around seven years old is sort of the typical age that children have an interest in it and their brains are developed properly. And in, that's not true for all kids. Some kids don't get it till they're 10 years old. Um, and so I've had, I've known two-year-olds who taught themselves how to read. So it's a big range of normal. But I feel like our schools have spent so much time focusing on data collection, uh, assessment, uh, standardized testing, 
and not allowing children to follow their curiosity and learn what it means to be a self-educated person and to Mm -hmm. get excited about learning. And there's no better place to get excited than being outdoors. So I feel like what we need to do is I would love because most I'm finding most teachers when they come out of the teaching programs, especially for early years, they actually been taught the right stuff. Mm-hmm. Then they they run into actual schools and the schools are not following uh, at all what the science says about early learning. Mm-hmm. Schools are just they're they're um, it's it's really upsetting to me. I've been, it's been kind of my mission for the last twenty years is to mm-hmm. try to convince people to question what we do in schools. And to really think about what we should be doing and to really connect ourselves with with what childhood should be about, what it's for. And I think that's what you're doing. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing is trying to create these bubbles, at least, where loose parts play, where nature play, and where children learn to learn how important curiosity is in their lives and yeah. asking and asking and answering their own questions. I mean, that's how I think about this. Naomi. I can't remember. I can't remember her name right now. I'll give it to you later. Um, That one of the things she talks about, though, that I think is interesting to think about is that most people, if you really talk to them, they'll say, yeah, below five years old, kids should be playing. I mean, even even the people doing the academic stuff in schools often say, I wish I didn't have to do it. Most of us agree that after about, you know, after certainly after you're out of school, we're all self-directed learners. Right. If you and I want to learn something new, we go find a video, we take a class, we ask a friend, we read a book, we find our own way to learn what we want to learn. We, the only time we seem to think that they need like academic instruction is between the ages of six years old and 18 years old. And then we got to make them sit at desks and learn all learn the same things at the mm-hmm. same time. So it gets so to me, I feel like I would love to have everybody trained in uh, in the pedagogy of being outdoors i would love them to know about the work that you're doing the work that aaron kenny's doing the work that timber nook mm-hmm. does the work that all the um incredible outdoor education programs are doing and i think they are learning some of that in the school but the real world is not set up for it we don't yeah. take outdoor learning seriously somehow learning has to happen inside of a classroom i mean you're even calling it an outdoor classroom Right. Mm-hmm. And suddenly by using that, you're sort of borrowing from the 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 bigotry of indoors, right? To to um, name your program. Mm-hmm. And we call it the outdoor classroom too. So it's not a um I'm not putting pointing a finger at you. I'm saying we Oh all... no, not at all. It's and it's even within outdoor classrooms. There's forest school, there's all these different right pedagogies within it. So it's really thinking about how they are overlapping and whatnot, but really thinking about that concept of what has become the, our culture, the norm culture mm-hmm. of our schools and how to uh, shift that. How can, and that's, that's our work. Uh, well, I think Lenore is uh, Lenore Skenazy, I'm pronouncing it that the proper way. Um, she's the woman who founded, you know, the free range uh, kids mm-hmm. movement. Um, and that's what she's got an organization right now called let grow. And what one of their main initiatives is they're persuading schools right now. They're focusing on New York City because that's where she is to make their facilities available after school for just free play outdoors Mm -hmm. and with very little supervision where you have like one or two teachers who get paid a little extra. But their job is just to in case in case somebody gets hurt. That's mainly their only reason to be. They're not there to settle arguments. They're not there to, um, you know, to make sure they just making sure there's, there's no violence or injuries. But other than that, letting the children play. So, and apparently, the schools that have instituted this program are seeing massive results from it. 
Yeah, of course they are. It's just, and I know there's a, there's a thing called, called play workers and that they're actually yeah. trained to be facilitators of play. Yeah. It's not uh, as, it's not as popular in the U S but in no, the UK, play work is a big thing in Australia. They do a lot of play work. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. So you've written two books, mm-hmm. book one and book two. Teacher Tom's first book, Teacher Tom's second book. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about those and what inspired well, but, them? Honestly, uh, I wasn't planning to write a book because I write in my blog every yeah. single day and I've been doing it for 15 years. And people kept saying, when are you going to write a book? And I kept saying, what am I going to do? I'm already writing the best I can every day. I'm not going to write anything better. Uh, so really what my books are is kind of best of collections from the blog. So I, what I tell people all the time is, you know, if you don't want to pay for a book, you can get it all for free. Go to the blog, Teacher Tom's blog, and you can read everything that's in the books. Or if you want a curated collection, you can buy the book. There it is. There yeah. it is. Any projects that you're working on? I know you've done some summits and all sorts mm-hmm. of, can you tell us a little uh, well, bit about those? Well, we do. Okay. So we're still, we're going back and forth right now on whether we're going to do a summit. We took a year off last year. We had some personal issues. We've been thinking about doing one that'll, that, so this was probably invite 25 early childhood educators and people related to uh, the early years, you know, and I interviewed them and we, we have uh, 25 sessions of that over the course of a week. And we're, we'll probably do a teacher Tom's play summit uh, this year, probably in June or July is when we're thinking about having it happen. That seems to be a good time. Um, also, I offer courses, online courses on a number of topics. And right now we're in the middle of one. I, maybe that's why I went on the riff about risk, because <laughs> this one's risky play is the yeah. course that's running right now. We uh, we offer cohorts throughout the year for all of them. Uh, and then I'm starting, and this is one of the reasons I'm talking to you, is I'm starting my own podcast. Yes. Uh, which is uh, where we're, I've, d- I've done the first batch of interviews and we're launching in, in February. And but guess t- what it's going to be called? Teacher Tom. Teacher Tom's podcast. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank You're you. going to love it. It's really, I, I started this so I could provide a platform for educators to tell their and share their outdoor classroom stories so we could have mm-hmm. more of a dialogue and I love it. experts and whatnot in. So yeah, my, my idea really is I want to just offer perspectives because that's all the world is, is different yeah. perspectives. None of us have, you know, have the perfect perspective and I love hearing from people who disagree with me, who have different approaches, who have different backgrounds, who are have to be, not only because of who they are, but where they live. And so it's I'm really looking forward to um, kind of expanding my own knowledge because just the way I learn from the kids, I expect to learn from my podcast yeah. um, more than teach. <laughs> yeah, no, it's and that's what it really becomes. It becomes a platform for all of us to have these dialogues, which is so incredibly powerful. So. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I could talk to you all day. Is there anything else you'd like to share, let people know in our community? You know, let your kids be outside. Stand back. Um, you mentioned play workers. Uh, one of my friends named Maynell Ames, he's a play worker from the UK. And he says, I have a three-step approach to working with young children outdoors. The first step is to take a step back. The second step is to take another step back. And the third step is to take a third step back. And I really would love to see adults understanding that sh- let children struggle, let them, uh, let them, let them have their bickering, their debates, right? We stop the physical violence, but go ahead and let them bickering is an important part of play. It's not a failure of play. Bickering is an aspect of it. When you think of your own childhood, that's, that's how you figure out the rules to your game, 
right? That's how you that's how you learn to negotiate the basic skills of being a citizen in a democracy is being yeah. able to not only bicker with each other, but then to continue playing with them, which is something I think as adults we've forgotten. So I, I just want to urge all the adults who work with young children to give them space um, to explore the world. Thank you. It's a wonderful note to end on. So if, again, Teacher Tom can find him. I'll have all your links and whatnot in the show notes. And okay. want to thank you for your time and energy and all that you're doing for this movement. It's it's uh, incredibly uh incredibly Well, thank you helpful. too, Victoria. This has been such a pleasure talking to you, and I'm glad to get to know you a little bit. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us here at the Outdoor Classrooms podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with anybody who you think would enjoy it and follow us on Instagram. We'd love to continue the conversation. If you want to continue the conversation even deeper, please join us in the Circle community. The purpose of the Circle is to support, guide, and push you as you continually grow and sustain your outdoor classroom by providing the tools to help you set the right goals, then actually follow through in achieving those goals with the support of our amazing community. Each month, 24-7, you get guidance and support from myself. You get to begin your journey with our new member roadmap. You get access to our outdoor teaching boot camp. You get to interact and learn from guest experts who are on our podcast. They come into our membership and join us to continue the conversations. You get to connect and collaborate during two live sessions a month. You get access to all our online workshops and masterclasses. You get get to dig deeper with our membership missions each month and you get to become an ambassador of joy for children. I hope you can join us at Outdoor Classroom. I will share the link in the show notes and we'll see you later. Come join us.